I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 330. Today in the show, Spencer Newarth and I are breaking down the top trends, environmental factors, and observations from the past hunting season that might help us as we move into the new year. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. I am sitting here today with my pal and Wired to Hunt uh, producer, helper outer, uh, big bearded, low voiced friend of mine, Spencer Newharth. We're in Montana and we're getting to do one of these rare in-person podcasts, which I like to do. So thank you, Spencer, for making time to do it. I was expecting you to say something like you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) You know that you're welcome to have me here. So so here's what I want to do today. It is 2020 now. We're in the new year, and we just recently wrapped up our 2019 Rut Fresh Radio series. Mm -hmm. As you know, what we do every fall is we check in with hunters every week during the hunting season to hear about the latest trends, the latest conditions, What's happening in the woods that week? So we do this week after week after week. And now what I want us to do is review that. Review 2019. What trends did we notice? Um, What takeaways? What can we learn from this past season? Um, Are there any things that happened in 2019 that might impact us in 2020? Is there anything that was surprising that is going to influence how we personally hunt next year or how other people might think about things. I want to kind of talk about all of that. Um, so I know you've kind of thought through some of the main takeaways from 2019. I've thought through a couple things. Um, but first I want to talk about why I think this is important because every year when the new year comes around, I like to try to, take some time to review what's happened because there's this idea floating around um, in academic research and kind of around the idea of performance and how to get better at something. There's this 10,000 hours theory. Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. Become an expert. Yes. So there's this, this theory that if you spend 10,000 hours on something that will lead you to become an expert at it. But um, that was the popularized kind of soundbite version of it. The actual research and the actual studies that, that came 
um, that led to that number and that popular line. Um, it was actually focused more so on deliberate practice. And so it's not just 10,000 hours of doing something will make you an expert. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice will lead to you being an expert in something. So you and I and, and a lot of other guys and girls, we want to become an expert at deer hunting, or at least we want to become a successful deer hunter. So we'll, we'll call that being an expert. Um, to have deliberate practice, to do something deliberately and, and to achieve that expertise requires that you have a thoughtful approach to doing things and a thoughtful approach to learning from them, which then allows you to take the next step and get better and better. So every time we hunt, we're essentially practicing hunting. If we just keep on hunting over and over and just do our thing and go out there and, and never take time to sit and think about what happened and what do we learn from it, then we're never actually going to get better. So this is, I try to do this all year round and we do this, we talk about this kind of thing frequently on the podcast, but I think taking an annual approach to it is particularly helpful um, because it's so easy during a hunting season, at least for me, to just get wrapped up in the, what do I have to do today? What do I have to do tomorrow? And then it's go, 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 go. And, and life gets busy and you make it through your hunt and then whatever happened that day, you come home and you've got work to do or family stuff to deal with or chores around the house. And then it's the next hunt and on and on. If you don't take the time to, to sit and reflect back on it, I think you miss out on a huge opportunity. And, and I think that's a like cool, unique part of Rut Fresh Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to doing that, my whitetail thinking and planning and reflecting was often like very insulated. That it was me and my buddies, um, and, you know, largely just around South Dakota. But with Rut Fresh, we're doing an episode a week, like 15 or 16 episodes a year. We're talking to, um, you know, four guys a week. We're covering like 30 to 35 states. And so I think that exposes me and hopefully the people that are listening to a lot of other ideas. And, and it might um, like kind of force that reflecting on you that you have a weekend coming up here where you're going to hunt and you think you're going to do this. But then maybe you hear something on the podcast that gets you to approach that differently or at least uh, consider approaching that differently. Yeah. And I think also it, you'll sometimes see your situation illustrated in somebody else's. And I found this to be where I'll be listening to some random person in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania or something somewhere. And they describe a situation and I say, Oh, that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And then you hear how they dealt with it or what they learned from it. And that's very helpful to then apply to your own thing too. Um, so, so yeah, that's, I want to kind of try to do this now on a macro level. I want to try to synthesize everything we heard over the past four or five months and everything you and I personally learned from it too and see if we can come away with some annual takeaways and some things that all of us can be thinking about and keeping in mind as we head into preparations for the 2020 season. But before we do that, I want to first go micro and talk just about your season mm-hmm. and my season personally. Mm-hmm. Um, First off, Spencer, and I'm going to steal your methodology here uh-huh. from Rough Fresh Radio. On a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your uh, how would you rate your satisfaction with your 2019 deer hunting season? Mm. Um, I would say like a 6. Explain. So, I didn't quite hunt as much as I wanted to. Um for a few different reasons. One of the big ones was planning. I just didn't um, plan things out well enough in advance to like 
make all those states that I want to hit happen or make these trips that I want to go on longer. So on the front end, I didn't plan well enough. Um, and then as far as success went though, on these shorter trips, the less hunting, probably the least that I've hunted in, uh, four or five years. Um, I was able to kill a few deer, no giants. Um, I think I killed a, a three and a half year old whitetail in South Dakota with my bow, a four and a half year old mule deer in Montana with my rifle. But then I failed on multiple muzzleloader hunts, one in South Dakota, one in Nebraska. Um, and then outside of that, I also did not kill an elk. So that kind of factors into it. Like I, I could be a lot more satisfied with my deer hunting season when I'm sacrificing some of this time that it could be deer hunting to elk hunting if I then killed an elk. Yeah. So that, that also plays a role in it. Um, so my satisfaction, I would say, is like slightly above average or slightly above mediocre. And that's largely on on me and my planning and just kind of how I prioritize my time this fall. Is there one thing that you can point to right now that you plan on doing differently next year? Plan better, for yeah. sure. Um, I, I was kind of sitting and waiting on a lot of limited draw tags this year for, for different Western states, some Midwestern states. Um, and when a lot of those didn't come through, then it you're like stood there left holding nothing and you're like okay what what can i do now to yeah. fill in on some of these and so that that made it harder um so i think having a a pretty solid plan a and then a lot more solid plan b c d yeah. stuff like that okay um i'll go ahead and do the same exercise myself um i would rate my satisfaction probably a, I, I would guess if I was guessing oh, for you. Yeah, please. I would say like a seven. Wow. That's what you're gonna say. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Okay. Now, why was I gonna say a seven? Um, because you <laughs> this is more fun for you me. killed on the back 40, <laughs> which which had to be like incredibly satisfying. It was, yep. Um, but then you didn't kill Tran. Yep. You uh didn't get to come to Montana and hunt this year. You yep. didn't kill on your boundary waters hunt or North Dakota. Yep. Um but I think the back 40 thing really makes up for that. And then on your trend property, you also elected to pass on other bucks. Yes. So it, it's not that you couldn't have killed. It's that you you chose not to. Yes. So I think all of that balanced out would land you at like a seven. That's amazing. You go. That's that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Every, every word to a T <laughs> got me nailed. Um, no, you're right. I think... Um, I am I'm really happy with being able to kill that buck on the on the back forty. Killing a mature buck in Michigan is always a huge accomplishment to have done it on that property that we were just kind of figuring out and that so many crazy things were happening with so many different people out there. So many just it's just like a crazy situation out there. And to have been able to do that, I feel very fortunate and thankful. So that was huge. But but then yes, like really wanted to kill Terrain on the back on not the back forty, but on the other property. Um, put a lot of time into that, had a lot of close calls, just didn't come together. Um, that's disappointing. But to your point, I could have killed two other, what would have been like two of my very best bucks in Michigan ever, mm. but I chose to pass on them because I really wanted to get a shot training. And, and that it, 
I had basically one tag in Michigan that I was allocating for the back 40, and then I was going to have one more tag to play with than otherwise. So if I shot one of these other bucks, I was done. And I just couldn't bring myself to do that when I wasn't sure they were mature and knowing Tram was still running around and knowing that there's a chance these deer could make it, um, decided to roll the dice. And so it's funny, though, that is like the biggest... The biggest thing for me coming out of this year was, was, and I don't have an answer to it, um, but my big internal struggle the whole season was around those decisions. Should I be so picky? Should I be passing on these deer? Um, or should I just, you know, they would have been great bucks. Um, it would have been really cool, but I kept on falling back on that. I would have felt a little disappointed. It would have been like a bittersweet thing. If I would have shot any one of those deer, there would have been a part of me that's like, eh. And I don't think I ever want to shoot an animal and ever feel that way. I want it to be a decision that I'm 100% like, yes. And so I, I keep on leaning back on it. If I'm not 100% yes on it, I shouldn't do it. So, that's, so you, even looking back, you, you don't have regrets about that? I'm like nine, no. Like I, I, I stand by my decision. Not saying there's like some percentage of me though that would have been like there's a small part of me like man it would have been satisfying to be able to have killed a really nice another really nice buck in Michigan I've never killed two really good bucks in Michigan in one year like that would have been cool um, and I'll look back at the videos of that one buck like RB who's he's a I mean he's a really nice buck um, you know I've never passed on bucks like that in Michigan before so part of it is like geez that would have been that you know there's nothing to be ashamed with shooting that deer but. Then another side of me says, it's also kind of cool that you didn't, though, and that you got to watch that buck so many times close, and you didn't. Like, that's cool, too. Like, that's a new thing for me. Um, so I went back and forth on, like, a million times, though, and and we talked about it on one of the episodes. I can't remember when, but on that buck, RB, that 10-pointer, that, man, I'm still torn whether he was three or four. Mm-hmm. But because I wasn't 100% sure, he came in, and I drew back on him at 20 yards, and I was on him, and I was, like, I was ready, and I was in my head. I'm like, yes, no, yes, no. Ah. And then I ultimately came to the decision that I just told you that if I'm not 100% yes, I shouldn't do it. So I didn't. But then literally an hour and a half later, he came back. And this time, like, damn it, I should shoot him. <laughs> and then so I got my bow and, and tried, thought about trying to get a shot at him, and then he kind of like didn't give me a shot. So, And then as he went, I'm like, yeah, I'm glad he didn't. I, I shouldn't shoot him. Mm-hmm. So like, that's been this whole back and forth thing for me all season and just kind of left me with with the the closest thing the closest thing I can get to is what I just said. If I'm not 100%, I'm not going to do it. But um but it was kind of the defining debate of my year. And then where I do have maybe a regret is North Dakota. So that was a public land hunt in a tough like it's been a tough place for me to hunt. Um hunted there one year before and couldn't get on immature bucks and then this year we talked about it but I'll just bring it up again. Um you know I I Want I really wanted to kill a mature buck on the on this in this area. It's a really cool area. I wanted to kind of solve the puzzle. And on my second day of scouting, I spot a really really good buck, like a definite mature four or five year old type buck, hundred and fifty type class, big ten pointer in velvet, just like a ooh a wow buck. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I want to kill that deer. And so I went, I made a move on him, went in that first evening, set up to get a shot at him. And early in the evening, I don't know, with an hour or two hours of daylight left, here comes this like nice A pointer, comes trotting by at 30 yards. And I had like a split second, do I take a crack or not? 
and I was like, ah, that big tent could be right behind him. Uh-huh. I'm not going to shoot him. I got the whole week still all this time. And so I passed on him and then filmed him with my phone off in the distance when he was in the grass. And coming out of that, in the moment, that one I'm still torn on. It was, it was cool to have passed on a deer. Well, I don't know. I would have shot him, I think, looking back on it. Mm-hmm. If, especially if he showed up on day three or four or five, right. no doubt about it, I would have shot him. So the only thing there was that if I had shot him on the, on the first night of hunting, second day of the trip, there probably would have been a little disappointment in that the trip was cut short. But standing here today, looking back on it, I would have, it would have been cool to have killed a public land buck in North Dakota in this really cool place that I've been trying to figure out. Um, so in, in that lesson learned there was, and, I, and I've, I've always known this, and you always hear this, don't pass on day one what you'd shoot on day seven. I've gone back and forth on whether I think that's a good approach or not. I still don't know where I stand, but I guess in this situation, it's easy to get to, I don't know. I don't know what I think, Spencer, but I think like I had a hell of a season in 2018. And so I came into 2019 feeling no pressure to like, I don't have to, I don't need to, I don't know. I was riding high. I killed four bucks the previous season, um, including my Mexican buck. And so I came in here feeling like I can be patient. I don't need to rush things. But now sitting here months later, kind of wish that I had taken that opportunity when it, when it arose. So I don't know. Continue learning experience. I'll keep on figuring out what I want from a season. But I will tell you, this coming season, 2020, I'm going to try to rethink my goals just a little bit. Um especially on public land stuff. I'm not going to get too picky. I went through phases. I was like, I want to kill like, any decent buck on public land. And I was like, you know what? Now I want to see if I can kill like a really good, mature old buck on public land. And um, now I might say, you know what? It's okay to just kill a pretty darn nice buck on public land. Maybe that's where I'm at in public stuff. And, and back to the saying that you referenced there, like the don't shoot something on the first day, you wouldn't shoot in the last. It, we've heard it said the other direction as well. Like, right. Don't shoot something on the last day. You wouldn't shoot on the first um, I absolutely hate both of those. Like I, I yeah. really dislike having some um, witty saying like that dictate your hunt. And yeah. it's like almost allowing other people to tell you what to do because it feels like a very outdoor channel snappy thing yeah. that people say in a moment where they, they didn't shoot a deer. Yeah. Um, and and I, I just really dislike that. I'm all about like moving the goalposts on your hunt. Um, I, I do it all the time. I go into a hunt and it's the first day and I'm like, okay, I'm going to hold out and I'm going to kill a mature buck. And then after a few days, you're like, this is way tougher than I thought. Mm-hmm. I'm now willing to take any buck or, or at some point it might become like, I'll, I'll shoot a doe because yeah. I, I just want to like have some kind of success and, and get the meat. Um, so I'm fine with that direction. I, I've also like went into hunts where I say I'm going to shoot a mature buck. And then it's like the second day. This was the example of my archery hunts in South Dakota this year. It was a second or third day. I was there for five or six days was a plan. And a three and a half year old came by. And if you'd asked me if I'd have shot a three and a half year old on the second day, Prior to that, I said no, um, but I got super excited when this buck showed up, um, and, and I shot him, and I was I was stoked about it, and I don't regret it, and I, I don't. That's why I then don't like these uh, like witty sayings that almost like lets somebody else dictate your hunt because 
somebody said that that elected to pass on a deer um and it seems like those often don't come from somebody that's always hunting in like a real world scenario sure it's like a, a super well manicured property in iowa or someone who is traveling to an outfitter and once they leave that outfitter they're going to another outfitter yeah. it's easy to say those things in that situation yeah. um so that's why i don't let those kinds of sayings like apply to, to my style of hunting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I keep coming back to, you know, here's my little witty saying I started. No, it's not terrible revolution. But it's hunt your own hunt. I keep going back to that. Like whatever's going to make you happy in that moment, you should do. And so that's kind of where I settle on things. Like I passed on a buck, the opening day of buck in Michigan, I passed on that buck and people were like, you're nuts. You're crazy. Give me a lot of shit about it. I was like, you know, it made me happy. It was what I wanted to do. Yeah. Same, you know, flip side. You, you shoot a buck and some people are like, ah, it's too small or too young or whatever. Ah, screw you. Hunt your own hunt. That's kind of where I've settled. Everyone's going to have their own personal approach and, and that's okay. What I do think is helpful is to think about what your approach is going to be. Mm-hmm. It, that just is helpful because in the moment it will help you make the decisions. Because one thing that can be challenging is if you don't know what you want and you find yourself in a situation like, I don't know, should I, shouldn't I? Um, just having put some thought into what you want out of a hunt or what your goals are going to be, I think will just make your experience a little bit more um, achievable or something. But that's neither here nor there. That's that's one of my big takeaways, though, from just what this season meant for me personally. But let's let's zoom back out now. Talk macro. So that was our seasons, our couple of the things that happened for us. Now when we look at the 2019 season from a big-picture point of view, we've talked to a whole bunch of people. This, I don't know if you can do this or not, or answer this question or not, but if you were to just put your finger on the pulse of the 2019 season, we we see a lot on social media, we talk to a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. If you had to rate the 2019 season in general on a one, ten to, 1 to 10 scale, like how good of a year was it for whitetail hunters? What kind of number would you put on that? Mm. Uh, I would probably give a similar answer to what our own were. Um, like a six or seven. And I think um, the positives of the season were that there was like a lot of moisture. So in antler growth should be up, but with all that moisture is a delayed harvest, which can make hunting really challenging for a lot of places that were standing crops during the rut. So that there's a pro and con there. Um, We had like some well-timed cold fronts, but if you want to compare that to years past, um, I think it was two years ago where if you pulled out a calendar and you just circled the cold fronts that you wanted, like you got to pick out three or four weekends where you wanted cold fronts, that's where they hit. Yeah, um, We didn't necessarily have that this year. We Something uh, at, at a smaller scale, but we didn't have that. Um, and there was also a lot less EHD than in years past there were some isolated places i think kentucky and and tennessee got hit with it and then there's there's little pockets elsewhere i think um southern iowa northern missouri but for the most part a lot of the country escaped ehd so i think that's a positive as well um with all that i would say like a seven yeah i was gonna give it a six a six or seven yeah i feel like that's that's somewhere in the right ballpark i think one of the big things for me that stood out that was pretty true across a lot of the country at least was during that peak of typical rutting activity right let's say last week of october through the first couple weeks or you know middle of november Mm -hmm. it was generally cool temperatures across most of the country we didn't have the warm spell in the middle of the rut like some years you do and i think that made a lot of people happy Uh, there's nothing i like less than a four-day 
window from November 4th to 9th that's like in the 70s. That's brutal. And I'm sure some parts of the country are warmer than others, but in a lot of the country I knew were generally good conditions yep. during that period. Yep. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go. But here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Now, let's unpackage though, a bunch of those little things you mentioned. You talked about a lot of things there that I think are worth talking about. Um, moisture. Rain. That was a big thing for a lot of people early in the season or early in the year. Sorry, because yep. we got very wet spring, right? And then what we talked about or what kind of happened from there was that a lot of farmers across the Midwest and across the nation weren't able to get crops in in some places. I bet you, I don't know, 30% of the farm fields in my neck of the woods maybe weren't planted as they typically would have been. Um, and a lot, maybe 50% weren't planted as soon as they usually are. Probably 50% went in late or they put something in different that they never would have usually. Um, like there was a lot of fields that didn't plant their typical grain um, of corn or beans and instead put in like a winter wheat late in the summer, that kind of thing, which is different. Um, a lot of folks, not a lot, but some folks around us plant hemp, um, something totally different than whatever gets planted. Um, that was something you heard about, talked about a lot throughout the year, right? The impacts of that? Many times. I think moisture would be like the number one theme from 2019. And that also might mean that that was like the number one factor for whether or not you killed this year. Um, it, it came up on almost every interview. Uh, and I think it, it affected most hunters across the, the Midwest and the West. And for those reasons that I kind of said, um, all of that moisture – it, it it has that effect that when you have a super wet spring or summer, that 
carries over all the way into fall for how deer hunters feel it. Uh, like you said, things that get planted and then things are coming out super, super late. Um, like I said before, a lot of those, what you'd consider the best days of the rut, um, those first two weeks of November, guys were hunting when there's still a lot of standing corn up. Um, and that certainly makes it challenging because that rutting activity can still be taking place, just not um, in the open where a bow hunter could kill a deer. Yeah. So I think that is like the biggest theme of 2019. Yeah. Let's dive a little further into what comes out of that. So first, let's talk the impacts in the spring. So you have a very, very wet spring like we had this year, like uniquely wet compared to some years, so much so that a lot of farmers couldn't get crops in. So when that happens, you have then a very different situation in the fall as far as available food sources and stuff. And then you also have possibility, though, of, of natural forage being better, maybe, right? Yep. So do we... This is something I really don't have an answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like I've read stuff about this, but I can't point my finger on a specific study. Um, but has it been proven, or is there research that points to um, rain in this certain... Like, oh gosh, I'm blanking on how to say this right. There's Is there a direct connection between antler growth and availability of rain or amount of rain in a spring or summer time period? That is one of those things that I... I hate when this sort of thing is repeated without somebody actually looking into it or knowing, and I'm doing that right now. And so I feel kind of guilty for like stating that earlier that we had this, this moisture. And so it equated to better antler growth. Um, but I don't know if that's a fact. That might be something that, that deer hunters have in their head. Um, it seems to, it sounds reasonable. It sounds possible. Sure. But we, we see nutrition play a factor in other ways with handler growth. If there's a super hard winter, um, yeah. then, then bucks are dropping early. So I could see where um, a lot of rain and a lot of food available, and great nutrition could lead to that improved and, antler growth. And antlers are a, um, this is a, I've, I should be reading my uh, research text better more often um, but they're like a secondary trait or they're a secondary importance to deer so basically resources won't go to antler growth unless the basic needs are already met so if a deer isn't getting enough protein enough of all the things it needs for its it's for its regular health and functioning they won't be able to devote as much of that uh, nutritional and, and energy needs to antler growth so a deer that has all of its needs met with lots of great food that's a deer that's able to put more towards antler growth, which which makes sense, right? That's why deer in you know along the Mississippi River corridor in Iowa and Illinois, et cetera, where there's just tremendous soil and food sources and all that. That's why these deer grow huge antlers. I'm not saying this is like the most important thing, but right. something people notice. Sure. Um, so it would seem reasonable to believe that if there's ton lots of rain, that could lead to more high quality natural forage, which could lead to you know, greater nutritional content for what the deer are eating, blah, 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 leads to better antler growth. But on the flip side, in this case, there were a whole lot of soybean fields that didn't get planted. Mm-hmm. Soybeans are one of the absolute very best food sources for deer. So I'd be curious to, I wonder if you could look and see, all right, we had 10% fewer acres in soybeans this year. What impact that might have had on available food sources? I don't know. I'm just spitballing here and thinking. But it's something that, would be worth looking into further. So besides antler growth, assuming that's true, that was certainly a pro of all that moisture. A con, 
or this could be a pro, depending on what sort of property you haunt or what kind of property you have, is how it altered deer patterns. Yes. Now, we've seen studies before um, that show how deer respond to floods. If if something is flooding, what are those deer going to do? They're going to leave at some point, and then are they going to return or not? Um, there, was, there was a great study done on, I believe it was an island on the Mississippi River, <clears throat> and it showed that deer are incredibly loyal to their home range, almost to a point where it's fatal. Mm. They, they tra- GPS tracked uh, these bucks ranging from immature, like one-and-a-half-year-olds, up to mature five-and-a-half-year-olds, and they were all super dedicated to that island home range as these waters were rising in the summer to the point where it killed a few of these deer that they wow. didn't leave in time. Most of them left, I think it was like 15 out of 17 or something, had left while the water was rising, and they all returned by the fall when that water receded. Um, but with some Porsche, with some parts of the country, that water never did recede. Um, I, I haunt a property in South Dakota that went underwater in like May or June, and then the water is still there right now. And it froze out with like a few feet of water on top yeah. of it. So in, in extreme cases, that changed the deer movement. Bad for me, but the neighbors who have high ground just pushed those deer over there. And they had then a better fall. Right. So that's that's a big thing with that extreme moisture that we had this spring and summer, how it could have changed your season. Yeah. I definitely experienced that in some places too. Like one of my main Michigan spots, a lot of areas, like there's a, just a section where my two track usually goes back to the back of the farm and you can't take it right now because it's still flooded through the whole hunting season. Mm-hmm. Or I know in early October, there's a lot of spots in Michigan that are super flooded. You know, the guys from the hunting public came out to Michigan and a lot of the spots they were trying to hunt north of me uh, were super duper flooded. That totally changed what they had to do. Um, Shooting when we did a week later, we were doing some public land hunting for field to fork program. We experienced that in some places. So yeah, yeah, it impacts people. Um, Now let's look at another pattern change with that, which would be back to when, when crops came in or out. Mm -hmm. Um, you had another feast or famine situation Yep, where you might typically have a crop field on a property you can hunt. What happens when they don't plant anything this year? What happens when the great big food source on your lease or the farm you have permission to hunt or whatever, or maybe even the property you own and you tried to plant and it was a failure or you couldn't get it in or whatever. What happens when you don't have that food source? That changed a lot of people's seasons, I think. Mm-hmm. And if you had the food, you might have had a disproportionately better season though. Because where deer might have been more spread out to more places, this year they're hyper-focused in the areas where there was. So I think I experienced this a little bit for different reasons. Um, But like on the back 40, for example, we had a farm that used to have food on it that we didn't have food on it this year. Not because of the rain, simply because we couldn't get anything planted really with the time we had. Mm -hmm. But there was lots of great food all around us. we saw much less deer activity than I would have expected if we would have had, you know, some crops in there, some food to hold them. Uh, I imagine that'd be a pretty frustrating, frustrating thing for someone if you're used to having that farm field there. Um, the one thing that it kind of makes me think about as a takeaway from that, you hear this occasional critique of people that plant food plots in the Midwest or in ag land. It's like, why food plot when you're surrounded by farm fields all over the place? Why are you wasting your time and money planting something when there's all these corn fields and bean fields and all that kind of stuff? You're wasting your time. I've always thought that to be not true. 
because I think you've got an added level of um, strategic benefits to planting something where you want it, the specific thing you want. You can plant something different than usual. You can plant something in a way that's unique. You can plant in a spot that's unique, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in this case, here's a whole other thing. You can't always count on the egg. You can't always count on you know there being these bean fields and corn fields and whatever because there's going to be years like this. So for the folks that had the ability on if they leased land or own land when they had the ability to put their own thing in later, they probably saved their season. While the person next door who couldn't in their farm or didn't get anything in, they might have a really slow season. So that's I realize it's not an option for everyone, but it's it's just one more thing to think about when considering whether or not food plots are worthwhile if you have the ability to do so. This year I think helped some people out. Um, and I benefited from that on one of my other Michigan properties where I did have food plots in and a neighbor didn't get their crops in that usually would have. And so I think I saw a little bit more activity because of it. Yep. And I think though, for most hunters, all of those standing crops tend to be a negative, um, standing corn. Yeah. yeah, Standing corn. Um, because there, there can be all that rutting activity taking place, just not anywhere in front of you. Those deer can bed out in those low spots. Um, they'll hang out on those fence rows and just areas that are really tough to bow hunt. But I know you have expressed in the past how if the state has a lot of standing corn, uh, Michigan, for example, that a lot of deer survive the gun season, which is yeah. a, a pro for you. So it can be both sides there, but I think largely standing corn tends to be a negative for, for guys. Yeah. I felt it was a negative on the back 40 mm-hmm. because we had a bunch of standing corn all around us. So that I definitely felt it there. But on the other Michigan property, I liked it because of what you just said. Yeah. Because we had standing corn the first week of the gun season through the opening weekend, you know, when a ton of people go out there. And and just like you said, I've always felt like I would rather sacrifice my success uh, for a little bit during gun season if it means that we'll have a better opportunity the next year. And this has happened a couple of years now in this area. We've had a couple of years with standing corn into this year we did. And I think the year before we did too. Um, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure what I can attribute this to. This could be a little bit of standing corners helped. This could be a little bit to the wet spring maybe. And this could be a little bit to just um, changing culture in my little neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. In this neighborhood, we're kind of getting more people that are interested in passing on younger bucks. But for whatever reason, um, and maybe, you know, maybe a little bit of some of the stuff I've been doing has helped too. Um, I'm seeing way more nice bucks in this little area than I ever used to. A lot more bucks making, like a lot of nice two-year-olds. It used to be like the two-year-olds were the best year I ever saw around there. And then it, now we're now I'm passing on like really nice three-year-olds. Sure. It was never a thing. And now this year, I think there are three bucks, four or older, or that will be at least four or older next year if they make it through the winter and everything, but that made it through the end of the hunting season, which is like unheard of for this little area. Um, and you think you could credit standing corn during gun seasons is, is a little bit is helping sure as helping yeah because i think i mean there's there's a lot of guys that hunt this area and um there was a lot of standing corn yeah so i think that helped a few and, and then like one more thing um this doesn't warrant a lot of discussion for standing corn but a property that is historically one of my toughest to enter and exit because I'm going through an open field that the deer want to be in at first light and last light, all of a sudden becomes the easiest property that I have 
for entrances and exits because yeah. I have that standing corn. You can be 50 yards from a deer and they have no idea. Um, there's so much movement and it's so dense um, that it makes getting to stand way, way easier. So while most years uh, in this year, I curse that standing corn when I'm out there hunting, it, it certainly makes that way, way better. That's a good point. That's a very good point. So what are a few things? Let's let's talk a little bit about how to deal with that. So we've got standing corn, let's say. It's the rut or whatever. It's time period that we would usually think it's down, but it's not. I have always approached it. Um, I would do. I would take advantage of what you just said. I would be a little bit more aggressive with my entry and exit because I can use that cornfield to my advantage as far as getting in and out of places, whether it be walking straight through the cornfield, something to do if you have, like if you own the land um, or if you know the farm or something, I know some guys will actually purposefully, um, if they own it, plant with a small path through the middle of cornfield. So plan on using the cornfield as an access route, going right through the middle of it, or just simply go in there in September or some period before you're going to start hunting and just clear a path through one of the, find one of those, um, uh, I'm having a brain fart here. Rows, find a corn row that you can kind of clear out of leaves and junk on the ground and just have a quiet path through it. Um, but yes, use the standing corn. I've also found that edges of standing corn fields, especially when there's a little bit of space, is become it's going to be a hot spot for scrapes. It's going to be a spot that deer feel comfortable moving in daylight so you can hunt those cornfield edges well still inside corners where a cornfield pushes into a big piece of cover is going to be a hot spot. Um, I've also always found whenever there's points or swales that extend into cornfields, that's always a really good place to hunt. Um, I was talking to another buddy this year who had started even just little grassy strips, little, um, uh, what do you call them? Uh, uh, I need another cup of coffee. There's, there, there's some name for these little grass strips that'll go out into the middle of like shelter, shelter belts or I don't know, whatever it is. These little patches of cover that sometimes extend into standing cornfields. He's been actually pushing them and finding ways to just slip or just stalk along these things. And you'll find these bucks bedded in these little grassy strips in the standing corn because they feel like they're surrounded by a jungle of cover. Mm-hmm. And you can take advantage of that sometimes. So it doesn't hurt to become a little bit aggressive when you have that situation. When they're they're not going to be in the typical places maybe you think you'd find them, take advantage of the fact that, okay, they're not maybe going to be in the places I thought otherwise as often, but maybe I'll focus in on these little points that extend into it. Maybe I'll try, uh, you know, I know some guys that actually walk cornfield rows with their bows and try to sneak up and shoot bucks in the standing corn. That'd be an interesting thing to try. So it doesn't have to be a negative. Yeah, and I think uh, it can help with some on-the-ground scouting. If you are trying to figure out where deer are entering and exiting a field and the field has been picked, it's really challenging to figure out where these deer are at. But if all the corn is standing, you'll find these places, I think, to a property that I haunt. There's like three saddles that hit this cornfield. And in my mind, those deer could be using any of those saddles. They're all equal but this year when you have that standing corn you'll see that one saddle specifically had um like corn that didn't get above your knees because the deer had just been destroying the corn in that area but not so much by those other saddles so on the ground scouting i think it can make that easier when you have that standing corn to figure out where these deer are eating 
I also think it insulates some properties better. Um, some places that I ordinarily wouldn't hunt when the corn is picked because it's too close to a road or it is too close to um, other, like a lot of open space. But when you have all that corn there, I think those deer feel a lot more comfortable because they don't have people stopping on the road to look at them or that they're not aware of all the vehicles that are traveling nearby. Um, so I think that that corn can just make them feel more comfortable and can lead to some better hunts then. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. And it, it just comes down to, all right, this is the situation we have before us. How do you make the best of it? Mm-hmm. And I think all those things are one way to approach standing corn. One other food source question, um, and this didn't impact me personally a ton this year, but um, what about our production of acorns? What was your feeling on how acorns impacted the 2019 season? What Does that change at all how you think about it moving forward? So I, I don't hunt around acorns a lot personally, so a lot of my acorn intel comes from the people that we talk to on Rut Fresh Radio. And in the past two years, it would come up every time I talked to somebody. They would reference the abundance of acorns that they had in their area, whether it was Arkansas or Kentucky or Pennsylvania or Illinois. It seemed like much of the country these last two seasons, 2017 and 2018, had a lot of acorns, and that changed their October hunts. This year, that was not coming up near as much. Um, so I, I don't know if it was an average acorn season or a below average acorn season, but I think that's notable because coming off of the last two years, there were so many acorns on the ground that it might have changed how you were hunting this year. And, and you didn't realize that um, if, if you weren't paying attention, you could have been like, well, the deer were doing this in 2018 and 2017. They were hanging back in the cover a lot more. They were not visible at all the entire month of October, whatever that might be. And then you could have applied that to this year and screwed up on something because Mm -hmm. there was now like a lot less acorn. So while I don't think that that um, affects everybody, it could affect the way you were hunting based off these last few years. And then it, it wasn't a great tactic to apply this year because all those acorns weren't there. And that's a really good point. When you, you, you have to be careful with the assumptions you draw off previous year's observations because you really need to think about the why to everything. And so let's just look at the specific why of a food source. The same thing could be applied to cornfields versus soybean fields in the rotation or it could be applied to this year we didn't have the crops, but last year we did. Um, so just thinking about what you saw in a given year and then think about what factors were at play that year. Mm -hmm. And so carrying that forward into 2020, something I think that I'm always trying to do a better job of is, is let's, okay. Yeah. I know that this is what deer did in 2019. I know this is what happened in 2018. I know this is what happened in 2017. What else was going on during those years? Okay. So 2017 had standing corn, 2019 had standing corn. Um, what about acorns? What were the acorn production these years? Okay. And see if you can start making any connections. And then this year, 2020, Getting the recent intel, the importance of trying to get an idea of what are the food sources now. So I know people like John Eberhardt really advocate for doing like a speed scout. Well, he'll go out like one day in September and walk all of his properties and check and see what apple trees are producing, what 
oak trees are producing? Is there any other food source that seems to be that's going to be good this year? Are you know are the are beans looking good? Whatever, so that he knows. Okay, this is the situation this year. You can't just depend on what every other year has told you. Yep, I think that's a big takeaway for me because um, this year could have screwed a lot of people up with acorns with the whole crop thing we just talked about. If you weren't paying attention to how things were different this year, like you said, you might have had a, a weird year. Yeah, it's got to be very in the moment. Um, like historical deer patterns have helped me kill deer in the past. But I know they've also cost me dear because I've fallen in love with a certain tactic or yeah. a certain stand that if I would have been paying better attention and scouting in the moment like that, I would have known better than to do this thing or hunt this area based on what the conditions were that season. All right. Another thing that was a little bit different this year, you alluded to this earlier. 2018, we had great coal friends every weekend. Bing, bam, boom. You couldn't have picked it out any better. This year was different. Um, let's talk about the timing of cold fronts in 2019 and how that might have impacted things. And then did you learn anything from that? Is there anything based on you're, you're kind of funny with cold fronts. You've been a little bit contrarian when it comes to cold fronts. Your theory in the past has been that cold fronts really don't impact deer movement. Really, it's just hunters have more confidence because there's been so much hype about cold fronts and that leads to folks having more success. Do you still feel that way? Um, I continue to like to lean on the science for these sort of theories. And that's what the science says is that science is kind of sure. It's the, kind the, of the studies, the, I guess we can, the, we can say the studies. Yeah. The, the studies don't necessarily, they're not necessarily answering the questions that I'm wanting answered though mm-hmm. is how I will position why I still believe in the impact of cold but nonetheless. So I, I like to lean on the, the studies that Penn state, um, Georgia, QDMA that, that they regurgitate of these studies, yep. things like that. I like to lean on those studies, and they say that warm, cold, um, neutral, the deer are going to move, and that's only the deer movement is just going to increase as you get closer to the rut, and it's going to decrease as you get further from the rut. And my argument would be that they are just measuring total movement. They're not measuring is there more daylight movement. They're not measuring is there a greater amount of movement from the bedding area into the open or different things like that that might impact hunting. Sure. So I, I like to lean on those studies and then say that I, I don't think cold fronts are the end-all be-all because I, I like to use science or studies in, in so many other parts of my life that I feel like I can't reject it here when it comes to cold fronts. With that said, though, I'm a hypocrite in that if I see a cold front coming, I get excited I will um, maybe hunt harder, like hunt a better stand. Or if I, if I wasn't planning on going, I'll now, I'll now go. Um, there's so much buzz around cold fronts in the whitetail world that it can't be 100% wrong. It, it can't be. So I, I am hypocritical in that way that I still like cold fronts and pay attention to cold fronts. But I think a larger aspect of all of this is that cold fronts will give hunters confidence, like I said. And like you said, that it might make you go sit in a better stand um, because you think this is the kill hunt. Um, It it will make you more alert. You're less likely to be on your phone. You'll get there earlier. You'll stay later um, because you have that confidence. I think that is as large a factor as it is that it actually makes the deer move in front of you more. I'll agree it could be a factor. I won't say it's more so. I'll (laughs) say it could be a portion of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So that said, whether phantom or reality, Cold fronts were something that a lot of people talked about this year. Um, 
lay it out for me the the most impactful cold fronts were when when did you narrow those down to this year i would say the second weekend of october it seemed a lot of seemed like a lot of the country had a cold front that hit on like that friday stuck around through sunday or monday and then the second big one was that very first weekend of november i think it was like november 1st maybe that kind of hung around for a few days and then sort of plateaued into just like some consistent weather for the entire run. Yeah, for like that long period, the first two weeks of November, at least in Michigan, it was just cold or really cold. Mm -hmm. But we never had, like we talked about earlier, we never had the weird warm temperature. And I remember during that time period, you and I were talking about, is it, is it at all going to be a downside? There's no change because last times people talk about changing changes in weather sometimes spur a bump in movement. We just had a kind of consistent cold. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't complain about that. I thought it was fine, um, but it was interesting. Yeah, and and I certainly like when you get that consistent cold that time of year. That's great, but with that can often bring some stagnant winds. Um, something you really have to plan for if if. And I think this year was a lot of north winds for a lot of the country during that cold front. You've got to be aware that if you have a rotation that's nine days long, um, six of those days you might have to plan on hunting north winds. And so then you really have to capitalize on those south winds hunts. You have to be more mobile to be able to set up and tear down to get yourself some new options if, if this north wind stand isn't paying off or if you bump a deer and that one is no longer going to be relevant for a few days. Um, so that stagnant weather, I think, has a downside in that way that you were then limited on some of your options. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. Um, other things around cold fronts that I think are worth noting is 
that first big cold front came kind of mid October ish, mm-hmm. which some might say is is a a slower time of movement. Um, I think we've pretty consistently talked about here that it's not any kind of biological lull, but there are changing factors in the woods that might influence deer to move less in daylight, possibly in some places, more hunting pressure, changing food sources, um, less cover out there as leaves come down. Um, so all that can change deer movement. Um, but then we had that cold front dropped into this same period. So there's a lot of different factors happening mid-October. Did you see any kind of big bump in success around that, I, my feeling was that I didn't see this monstrous um, upswell of, of success from people that you might have seen, like what happened in 2018 when we had a really nicely timed cold front in late October. And everyone was like, holy smokes, late October. Like that, I remember from like the 24th through the 30th or 31st of 2018 was banging. Like mm-hmm. lots and lots of deer were hitting the ground during that time period. Um, this year, I didn't feel that happened during that time period nearly as much. And then when we did have that big cold front in, like you said, like mid-ish October, it was meh. Is that the sense that you got too? Yeah, that's it's so hard to quantify because it seems like so much of it is is anecdotal. Yes. But twenty very subjective. Yeah, 2018, you're right. It felt like uh, we had that one. It was like the 5th through the 7th in October. And then we had that one later in the season. It seemed like a lot of deer were getting killed, um, especially that first one that was early in October. I can't remember the exact date. Somewhere between like the 5th and the 10th. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we both saw, we had guys on Rutfresh Radio that were calling their shots, yep. saying that I think it's going to be great. And then I think three out of four of the guys we had on, on the one Wednesday, they went out and killed like that Saturday. And then just social media lighting up that same time period where it was early October, but it felt like it was early November from all the deer yeah. that were hitting the ground. Um, and so, like I said, a lot of that tends to be anecdotal, but it certainly seemed like 2018, that happened for sure. 2019, less. Less so. And my takeaway from that, as I continue to see this happen year after year, all the different variations and stuff, if I had to, and again, this is anecdotal, this is just a, like a trying to put my finger on the pulse kind of thing. These are the little tiny observations I'm making. But I would just, as, as you try to, one thing a lot of hunters deal with, um, you and I a little bit less, so we're fortunate with our jobs now. We've got some wiggle room, but um, still to a degree with family life and everything else going on, we have to pick our times to hunt. And it's better to hunt than not hunt. If you've got a limited schedule and you just got to go and you got to go, do it. But if you have the ability to pick your shots, pick your times, and you're being selective about when you can do it, um, I would say that there's varying levels of impact a cold front can have. I think I believe that most cold fronts can help a little bit. But I think that a cold front timed at specific parts of the season can have a disproportionate impact. So what I'm thinking here is that a a really early season cold front is a disproportionately special cold front. So if there's a cold front that hits on October 1st, I'm pumped about that one. I'm more pumped about the October 1st one than I am about the October 12th or 13th or 14th one. I will second, I'll secondly say that a late October cold front I'm disproportionately excited about because that seems to be like that'll kind of really kick things into gear a little bit more than they might otherwise. I'm slightly less excited, though, about a cold front that's like November 10th because it's going to be pretty good no matter what. I, mm-hmm. I like it. Like, I'm going to be happy about it. But if, if, if you gave me, like, the ability to – if you gave me two cold fronts and I had to pick when I want them, I would either pick very beginning of the season – very end of October or like a late season mm-hmm. cold front. 
I think those are when it makes us, it has a special power. Yeah. Maybe. And I'm, I'm just kind of, this is like a high level thing I'm thinking. I don't have any science. I have no studies I can point to purely anecdotal, but it's kind of, that's the feeling I get after talking to so many people, hearing from so many people. Um, it seems to be a slightly more impactful at those times. And, and so with that um, favored cold front that you talked about at the very beginning of October, how does that change your tactics, like specifically your hunts? Are you getting closer to bedding? Are you hunting more questionable winds? Are you going into areas that you, you otherwise wouldn't? Like, are you hunting a morning that time of year when you otherwise would not be hunting a morning? So in the super-duper early season, I still wouldn't hunt a morning unless I had like an observation, a trial camera picture that told me, hey, he's moving in daylight, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that swing I would not take. Because I still just, at least in a lot of spots I hunt, it's just really hard to get in these places early season in the mornings. Um, but I would get more aggressive in other ways. So I would, I would push it. I would hunt my best early season locations. And I would find, try, try to find ways to do it, even if the winds were slightly more questionable or if it would require me pushing a little deeper to a property than I typically would. Um, getting the cold front at that time of year, I, I've just seen so many times, and again, it's, it's personal, it's anecdotal, but I've just seen so many times that when you got that cold weather the first few days of the season, one of the very, very best chances you'll have all year. So this year, now this, this, could, be, you know, this could be an example of not listening to what I just said. This season, um, we had a cold front hitting, but it was hitting the second day of the season. So I opted for the first time in like 10 years not to hunt the first night of the season in Michigan. I just, I, I was out there. I was scouting though. So I sat in an observation location far away from where I would be able to get a shot of deer. And I was just glassing the spot I wanted to hunt. So I wanted to see this long area. And you know the story. I told you this, you know, five months ago or whatever it was. So I scouted the first night of the season because it was poor conditions because I wanted to be more informed to hunt the second day when we had better. And lo and behold, first night of the season, my target buck Tran shows up right where I was going to hunt if I would have hunted even though the conditions weren't great. But the next day, conditions were pretty good. I went and hunted there, and I had a shot at, you know, 130-class, really nice three-year-old buck. I did have a shot at what would have been my second biggest, you know, Michigan buck on this property. Um, So it paid to a degree to push in there that day. Um, I just chose to be more picky. I don't know what to take from that. you You could look at it either way, I guess. But long story short, when you get those cold fronts at the right time of year, I get more aggressive. I'll, I'll, you know, I will take more chances when I think conditions tell me that a buck's going to be on his feet moving in daylight a little bit more likely. Sure. Uh, and with that first weekend of November cold front that hit, you also had the rutting moon right about that time. Something else that um, I don't pay much attention to. I like to look every year when it's going to be. Um, and, and with moon activity or with, with moon dictating deer activity for me, I've said this before, it's like Bigfoot or aliens. Um, <laughs> I, I don't believe in it, but if you have like a good Bigfoot story or a good alien story, <laughs> I'm all in, I want to hear about it. Tell me about it. I will stop on a show that deals with those things every time I'm flipping through the channels. Um, I'm, I'm fascinated by the subject, but ultimately if you had to be like, do you believe in Bigfoot? Do you believe in aliens? I'd be like, no. Okay. That's how I feel about with moon phases altering deer movement. But do you leave it open as a possibility? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I could be convinced someday. 
I, I lean on the studies, like I said about with cold fronts, um, those studies show that moon doesn't change anything, but there could be a study that comes up that, that changes that because, um, as we've seen, like deer studies today are different than deer studies 20 years ago absolutely, or 40 years ago. And some new technology might come out that show us that like, oh no, we, we were, we were wrong about this. So yeah. my mind could certainly be changed. What I'm getting at is we had that rutting moon that fell in early November. Did you notice anything about that? What should hunters expect to see that time of year? And how is like this rutting moon different than other ones we might have? Yeah. So the rutting moon, quote unquote, is supposedly the second full moon after the autumn equinox. And the theory behind this is that when that occurs, that is kind of a trigger for rutting activity. This is a theory popularized by the late Charles Elsheimer and Wayne LaRoche, I believe, uh, based off of a bunch of observations and studies they did. Uh, But to your point, almost everyone else, almost all other studies have pointed to that not being true. Almost everything else points to the fact that the rut is triggered by photo period, which is the changing levels of daylight, which are consistent year after year, which means you have a consistent, a relatively consistent peak of breeding activity year after year for most places in the country. I used to pay more attention to the rutting moon. Um, I used to always see when it was and pay attention to see, do I see something different? Is, 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 is there something to it? Um, Honestly, the last couple of years, I haven't even really paid attention because anecdotally, I just haven't seen anything consistent enough to make me disregard the studies. So I personally don't take into account. The believers would tell you that you should pay attention to that and that there are certain, kind of like how I do believe that cold fronts at certain times of the year can have an impact. Mm -hmm. They might say that when the rutting moon is placed in certain parts of the calendar, it'll have an impact. So one theory is that if you have a very, early or late rutting moon that falls outside of the typical window of rutting behavior. We'll call it the first two weeks of November. If you've got a rutting moon that falls outside of that window, you might have what will be called a trickle rut where you don't see a real great burst in intensity of rutting activity. It's kind of a little bit here, a little bit there, starting maybe mid-October and then continuing through mid-November later. That's That's the belief. I don't subscribe to it. I believe that based off these studies again that you're going to see the most breeding in Michigan starts around like the the top of that it's a bell curve right there's some that are earlier there's some that are later but the highest number will be in that mid-November time period so I always look at the last week of October and the first two weeks of November when I'm expecting to see the very most activity not breeding but running activity leading up to breeding. And then you're going to see some of the different behaviors scattered throughout. I don't want the running moon. I don't want the moon at all really impact my strategy too much anymore. The other rut-related theory or the other activity-related theory around the moon is the red moon. Um, there's a lot of folks that believe in that. I've got good friends that really believe in it. I know there's a lot of very successful hunters that really believe in it. I won't throw out. I won't throw it out completely. The belief that the position of the moon at certain times of day might get you a little bit more daylight activity. Maybe there's a little bit of truth to that in some kind of way. I just, I can't point to any definitive truth or change in my strategy around it, but it's, it's, there might be something to it. But the, basically the red moon thing is, is there's certain days or certain times when the moon is directly above or directly below overhead or underfoot, which supposedly can impact a little bit of early movement. Um, one thing maybe worth noting is that in 2018, there was an evening red moon during that late October time period. 
that also coincided with the cold front, which also coincided with what we both observed being a particularly high number of people killing mature bucks in 2018. This year, we didn't have that. We didn't have the red moon either. I, I, you can't connect the dots to one thing or another, but it's it's an observation. Um, in 2019, when was that running moon? What should have people expected to see? So the running moon was October 31st, which would have basically been right in line with when I would expect running behavior to be picking up regardless of the moon. So that's how I approach it. I just, I'm going to look at what's the calendar date and I'll look at weather conditions a little bit to help me understand if I think there's going to be a little bit more daylight activity or not. Um, but I'm always blocking off those, those dates as they, sh- they should be pretty good. Yeah. Um, the, the moon or otherwise. And I kind of just crapped all over the moon stuff. Um, and one of the reasons that I never like really loved having a moon dictate your hunt is that I felt like it was something that deer hunters had invented to, um, like, talk about why movement might be better or worse. And I thought this was like largely a whitetail thing. And then I moved to Montana and I started elk hunting and Giannis Patelis is a former elk hunting guide. He's a great elk hunter right now. I was bouncing all kinds of questions off him because I'm so green to it. And, and I would just, um, anytime something would come up, I'd shoot him a text or I'd go bug him in the office. And he would talk about how the moon affects elk hunting and how a lot of guys that he worked with, felt the same way that the moon affected elk hunting. And Yanni is someone whose elk hunting knowledge I I greatly respect. And so that kind of opened my eyes to something else as well, that, well, it's not just um, whitetail hunters on manicured properties that think this is a thing. It falls outside of that with elk hunters. Um, fishermen talk about how the, how the moon can yeah. affect things. So that's, also why I leave it open that I could be, I could be talked into the moon affecting deer movement uh, someday, but until like that study comes out, yeah, it's something that I'm not real concerned with. Yeah. I feel like if, if anything, it's like, and I've said this many times before, I look at it as like a sweetener. It might give you just like a 2% better chance that a mature buck maybe is going to move in daylight a little bit further. I I won't complain if the moon is supposedly good for the day I'm going to hunt, but I don't let it dictate too much of what I do. Yeah. If you were listing out like uh, 10 factors as to why this might be a good or bad hunt, that's not going to be in like your top three or four. No, it's going to be lower on my list. Yeah. It might be something I say, Hey, I hope this helps. Yeah. But it's not going to be what I'm framing the whole plan around. Same. Um, so we've talked about the timing of cold fronts. We talked about the time of the moon. We talked about how the wet spring and wet fall changed things around. Is there any other major factor from 2019 that, is worth noting or that might impact us in 2020 at all? I was less aware of this because I didn't deer hunt much in December. I think I hunted five days in December, but it seemed like most of the country had a pretty mild uh, December. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you almost hunt, you hunt December every year uh, with success often as well. So maybe you can speak to this better on what a mild December means or what a December with a lot of snow means or what a December with a lot of cold means. But it felt like this year in 2019, uh, there wasn't a ton of big snow uh, experiences across the country. The temps never got super cold. We just kind of had a mild last month of the 2019 season. Yeah, and I think this goes back to some of the factors we've talked about. I mean, all year, every year, we talk about the same things. Um, But again, a review, 
typical late season conditions that I'm looking for is I want a big cold front again or a, a, a significant weather event. A significant change in weather typically will spur some, some increased activity, daylight activity. So a big major cold front, like super frigid temperatures, that's one of those things that can get deer that might be less likely to move in daylight to be willing to get on their feet. The second thing could be a big snow event. And for much of the Midwest, we didn't get either one of those things for most of December. So I personally didn't see the late season activity I've seen in years past. And I saw plenty of deer, but I wasn't seeing the mature bucks like I thought I might be able to see. Um, I was waiting and hoping to take advantage of one of those fronts to go and try to take a late season crack at Tran, that buck I'm after. Never got it. Um, so I, I hunted regardless, but I just didn't get the movement that I thought would really happen. So I saw very few bucks on their feet in daylight coming out into the open. When I was seeing them, they were way back in cover in places I couldn't hunt, but I could just kind of see in the distance. Um, the one time that my buck did come out to a food source in the late season, it was a cold day, just a few days, like the second day after snow, about as cold as we got all late season, and very high pressure. It was like a bluebird sky, high pressure day, and it was one of those days that, and you can just feel it. There's certain, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but I, I can predict an hour or two before the end of daylight, the nights when I'm going to see a mature buck or when there's a really good chance. Like you can feel, oh, oh, this is going to be one of those nights where there's a good chance. As long as something doesn't get messed up, as long as some other hunter doesn't spook him or a coyote runs through or I don't spook a doe, this is going to be one of those nights. You can feel it. Like you'll see more young bucks on their feet early. You'll see the does coming out earlier. Um, You'll see, especially here, oftentimes in the late season, the places that I hunt, it'll either be like all does or it'll be the night when you can see a bunch of bucks. But for some reason, it, they, they right this time of year, the bucks kind of start regrouping back in sort of pseudo bachelor groups to a degree. And if, if I start seeing two-year-old bucks on their feet, I'm like, oh boy, tonight could be a good night. And that happened one time the entire season. And that one time last year that came out was the big man and I couldn't get a shot at him. But um. But yeah, we didn't get the optimal conditions this year. I imagine there are a lot of people that had slightly less success than they would have hoped in the late season because of it. Um, I guess what that means on the bright side for 2020 is that, again, we might have had a few more deer that made it through to the new year. So we might have, like in my case, I've got several mature bucks that I know made it through the guns or made it through the hunting season um, when in past years you didn't. So glasses half empty would be that I didn't fill a tag. Glass half full is that 2020 looks pretty exciting. Yeah, and, and something um, that we talked about with the average acorn crop, that's not always notable, but when the season before is so different, then it becomes a notable thing. With the mild December, um, that's that's not really like always a notable thing when it comes to whitetails shedding their antlers. But last year, there was a ton of evidence of deer shedding early mm. in December yeah. and, and by early January. Um that it became something that wasn't really anecdotal anymore. And I talked to Kip Adams about this and wrote an article about this as to why it seemed like deer were shedding early across the country last year. Um, and he had kind of pointed to like environmental stressors as to why those three things to be like crop failure, prolonged flooding, and prolonged cold. So when we didn't have like the prolonged cold this year, I think then you're not uh, going to expect to see the same thing as 2018 where bucks were shedding a lot by Christmas Day. Yeah. Um, something you're probably not going to notice this year. 
Interesting. So, there's 2019 in a, in a, what's it, a nutshell, I think is what they say. Sure. I'm having one of those days, Spencer, where in words... In acorn shell. In acorn shell. I'm having one of those days where the words just aren't coming to me. I couldn't sleep last night. Yeah. I was up to like 1.30, mm. um, stewing on new ideas for the Wired Hunt podcast. And, um, it's just that, thin air. Yeah. That's what it is. That might be it. Um, so th- that's our year in review. We talked a little bit about some of the things we'll be thinking about differently. Um, but do you have, to, to close us out, do you have one New Year's resolution for 2020 related to hunting or deer? Is there any one thing you're hoping to do differently, better change um, that you will be focusing on as you deliberately practice and prepare for the 2020 deer season? Just do better than this year. That's that's largely it. Um, that's so generic. I know, but I, but I want to <laughs> hunt more. I want to kill more. Um, so I think that's that's really simply it is is hunt more, kill more, and and there's a lot of things that go into that. Like I said, planning better, um, maybe changing some tactics, not falling in love with historical things that have maybe worked. Um, so I, I think those are it. If if I had to get more specific. Um, this year I killed my buck during the rut with my bow, um, in a part of this property that I'd never really hunted in a stand that I would never, um, in a tree that I'd never hung a stand in before. Um, and it was because I forced myself to do something different during the rut rather than relying on, uh, these stands or these trees that I know I've worked in the past. And so I want to do more of that going forward stay more mobile, uh, stay more in the moment. Like, okay, this isn't working. So I have to do something differently. Mm-hmm. Um, that was why I was successful on that hunt. So I think I need to apply that to more of my hunts yeah. going forward. Good. That's good stuff. I think for me in 2020, we haven't really talked about this at all today. Um, but one thing that I want to do or a shift is maybe be more, maybe a little bit more conservative on when I hunt. I, I kind of went a little bit, I, I've been ebbing and flowing with this. And this year I hunted a bunch in the same places because I've figured out some ways to hunt these places with relatively low impact. Um, and I, I've also gotten to the point where I know you can have some success in mid October, late October, et cetera. Um, so I got a little bit aggra- more aggressive with when I hunted than I usually do. This coming year, I want to, pull back there. I want to become a little bit more conservative with how often I go, but I want to get more aggressive with where I go. So I'm going to hunt a little bit fewer days, but I'm going to push in deeper to the cover. This past year, I I did that to a degree, and I started hunting in a few of these spots a little bit more under the cover than I used to. And with some mobile stuff, I was shifting stands. I was moving 30 yards to a new spot, and I uncovered a couple spots that I can hunt um, where I was getting more opportunities than I ever have on one of these Michigan properties. And I think that can be applied to some of my public land stuff too. I want to just keep on pushing further and further. I've, I've, I've started out as a deer hunter being very afraid to spook deer. I, would, I, would, I, was, I was always erring towards, I'd rather not bump them out of here. I'd rather wait and observe and, and hope to catch them making mistakes. I think that's still important to a degree, but I'm getting confident enough with knowing where that line is to now push it one step further in 2020. So a little more conservative about when, a little more aggressive about where is uh, is something I'm going to be thinking about. And I think all the things we talked about, the food sources, the cold fronts, 
the timing of whatever types of weather impacts might be out there. Rut fresh radio, the intel we're getting, all of that definitely impacts my whens, which will allow me to determine the wheres. So that's how I'm using Rut fresh radio. I appreciate you helping do all that every year for us, helping kind of break this down this year. Um, I personally find this show to be super helpful. Like it's a selfish project. Every week I listen as a consumer more than anything. And um, man, I hope everybody else feels the same way. I enjoy doing it. Um, it's one of my favorite parts of the week every year when I record those episodes. So I, I hope uh, listeners liked season four and I'm already excited for season five because of these things we just talked about. Here we go. 2020 off to the races. And that is a wrap. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one as we broke down the trends and, and observations from this past hunting season. I hope you'll all take some time to think through these questions for yourself, what you observed, what you learned, um, whether it be high-level things like we talked about with weather and, and different kind of environmental factors or more personal, like the mistakes you might have made or things you tried that did or did not work out well. Take some time to reflect on that. Take some time to think about how to do things differently the next year. That that deliberate, thoughtful approach to analyzing a past hunting season and preparing for the next hunting season in a new way, I really think that's the silver bullet. That is the secret to taking your hunting to the next level. It's simple, but it simply works. So thank you again. Appreciate your time. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.